Good morning. I'm going to just share a little bit about um, some ways that I found helpful for studying the Bible. None of these are things I've come up with my own, on my own. There are a lot of really great teachers here in the church, so a lot of how I study the Bible has been influenced by um, how Pastor Matt has taught us, um, how Mike Lutz has taught us in the past with his um, his Sunday school lessons where he would walk through books of the Bible, and heavily influenced by Jen Wilkin, which is not surprising for a lot of you. Um, so I used to just be a open my Bible, wherever it opened must be what God needed me to read that day. It must be what was going to be meant to help get me through the day. Um, and now as as I'm growing in, um, in reading the Bible and learning more about God, I know that while there's nothing wrong with just opening the Bible and reading wherever it falls, I'm missing a lot of the story when I do that. I'm missing the context. I'm missing why it was written. Um, so one of the things that um, Jen Wilkin talks about and Pastor Matt's talked about um, is reading in context. And um, Jen likens it to the concept of learning math. Um, you're not going to open your book to the middle of your algebra textbook and expect to know the whole story. You're not going to be able to work out what's happening and how to work out these problems. You really need to start from the beginning. Um, so that's been really helpful for me to understand uh, why I need to start from the beginning of a book, why I need to put myself in the shoes of the original audience. Um, so looking at a book of the Bible in context, who was it written to? Who wrote it? Why was it being written to them in that time? Instead of opening the Bible and assuming that something is meant to hit me right here, why was it originally written? Why did it have to be? Why those words? Um, and not everything is going to be meant for me personally. Um, it's meant for me to learn from, but it may not be something that I'm meant to put in practice myself, um, but it is definitely going to have value. Um, so that's been really helpful for me. Uh, consistency. Um, on the B-Side podcast a few weeks ago, Pastor Matt and Malia um, and Shauna talked about how um, how they find time to stay in the Word. And the big key to that is setting aside time every day. Like if you just wait for a perfect time to pop up every day to be in the Bible, it's not going to happen. Um, so for me, first thing in the morning, um, that's the first thing I do is get in the Bible because I have kids. By the time my day gets going, I'm not just going to have uh, half an hour pop up where I'm going to be like, okay, I can sit down and have quiet time now. That's not going to happen. And by the time they go to bed, I'm ready to go to bed. So, um, so find a time of day where you can consistently be in the Word. Maybe that's your um, lunch break. Maybe for you it does work after kids go to bed in the evening. Um, but just be consistent because um, it's hard to be motivated to wake up in the morning and, and get in the Bible. But once you start a daily habit, you're going to notice when you miss it. Um, it becomes something that, that you notice is lacking when you haven't had that time. Um, Something that has helped specifically for um, studying any of the book of the Bible, but especially this First Corinthians series, is rereading the text over and over. Um, so this week we're covering chapter 5 in First Corinthians. Pastor Matt will be preaching on that today. Um, so I made it a habit to read through every day. Um, so I'm using my scripture journal. Highly recommend it. Um, and every day I read through in the scripture journal, and then um, I underline things, I make notes. And it might surprise you, but when you read it every day. New things are going to jump out at you every day. I think every day I've underlined something new or wrote a new thought on it because when you read it every day, you're going to pick up different things that you didn't catch before. Um, something else that's really helpful for me is reading different translations. Um, so the scripture journal here is ESV, but I read in the NIV a couple times this week, and there are different words that help clarify some verses for me. It gave different meanings to those verses and helped me understand that a little better. And the other reason I recommend reading in a Bible and not just your journal, is your Bible's going to have footnotes. So on some verses, you're going to see those numbers or those letters. They're going to direct you to the bottom of the page, and they'll cross-reference other scriptures. Um, so that's been really cool because in 1 Corinthians, you're going to get jumped back to, I think it was Deuteronomy this week, um, you get jumped back to other parts in the Bible. So you see that the New Testament teachers are relying heavily on the Old Testament. Um, and sometimes we don't know that the Old Testament is important too. But they're relying on their audience to know what was in the Old Testament. So, so that's very cool. Um, I really encourage just working, to, working through First Corinthians. I think this is a great opportunity to get in the habit of daily reading um, and learning how to read through um, for understanding each book of the Bible in context. So. We are working through, and, and we are um, all the way up to after like— eight weeks now, seven weeks, something like that. We are all the way up to 1 Corinthians 5. Um, and 
I just want to level with you before we get into this. 1 Corinthians 5 gets weird. It gets weird. And so we're going to deal with some weird things today. We're going to deal with um, this idea of um, sexual immorality, right? Um, Incest. We're going to deal with, um, even though it's not explicitly talked about in the text, other kinds of, of sexual immorality. We're going to talk about abuse a little bit. Right? We're going we're gonna to talk about um, wanton sin. We're going to talk about hurting people. We're going to talk about specifically and purposely knowing the will of God and turning our back to it as if we don't care. And on top of that, we're going to talk about how it is that the church, as a body, not just as a pastor or as elders or as an individual part of the church, but the church as a collective, how the church is to deal with these things when they happen, right? What the church's role in discipline is. Chapter 5 is all about church discipline. And when we say discipline, we get the idea that it's this harsh kind of measure, this judgment that comes against people. But discipline isn't harsh. It can feel harsh. But anybody here that's a parent knows that discipline is actually an act of love. It's a necessary loving component of how you treat people that you're trying to encourage to grow. We discipline our kids because we love our kids, right? Because we don't want to raise monsters, right? We, we, we don't want kids that, that grow up and feel like they can just do whatever they want with no consequence because we know that they are going to run into a wall if that's the way they are. So we discipline out of love. God tells us in Hebrews 11 that he disciplines as a father because he loves. God disciplines those he loves, And as a church, that's our role as well. Now, I'll confess to you that this is a, a, this is something that is not as easy to navigate for church leadership as we would like it to be. And it's always tricky when we talk about church discipline, right? Because we know um, at a base level that sin is sin, right? Sin is sin. And all sin needs to be dealt with because all sin is um, an affront to the goodness and holiness of God. Yet we also know that not all sin is exactly comparable on a disciplinary level. And so we're going to see that as we get into the text today uh, a a little bit. And and we'll just, we'll track through this. But um, here's the deal. Every single one of us has been in a position where we have been in the need for discipline. It's just a true statement. We're human beings. uh, We're sinful in nature. We struggle uh, to follow the will and the word of God. And every single one of us has found ourselves in a position where we are in need of discipline. Where we have decided to live a life that doesn't line up with what God has uh, directed in his word. Now, The thing is, most of us don't think that our lives are that bad. It's it's interesting when David stands up here and he says, man, I am a failure. Like, I am too. And many of you are in the same boat. Why does that take an epiphany, right? Why does it take an epiphany for us to say, you know what, man? I keep messing up and I keep doing things that God says don't do. That should be our posture, not out of weakness, right, but out of humility so that we can accept the goodness of God and the grace of God and choose to move forward. We'll we'll see how this unpacks, but think of it like this, an addict. Walking down a street, struggling internally with an addiction, right? The addiction that calls them to turn down the alley they don't want to walk down. And they're walking down the street and they're fighting. They're fighting to stay on the path. 
with all of the willpower that they can muster, they are fighting to stay on the path and walk down the street. But you know what? Our willpower isn't good enough. And the addiction draws and it pulls. And despite their best of intentions, oftentimes they, they turn down that alley and they find themselves smack dab in a place where they don't intend to be. They didn't want to be there. And they're there. Our flesh is like that. Right? And, and this isn't to make light of addiction because addiction um, it, to, to chemicals, to, to alcohol, to substances, to, to pornography, to other things, the, the draw is very real. But listen, we all struggle with that kind of addiction. It's called our flesh. It's the sin nature that's in us. Right? Sometimes we have an addiction to a specific thing, right? But for all of us, for all of us human beings, we have an addiction to the flesh, to the sin nature. It's very real, and it has the same very real draw. We're walking down a street, and the sin nature, the flesh, wants to pull us aside. Right? Paul addressed that earlier in... in Philip, help me out here. Paul addresses that earlier in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, right? He says, I, I wanted to feed you, right, some solid food, but I had to give you milk because you weren't ready for solid food. Why? Right? Because you're still of the flesh. The sin nature is still way too strong in you. It's still pulling you in places you don't want to go. That's what the flesh is. It's this sin nature that pulls. You're walking down the street and it's trying to pull you away. Now as Christians, right, we are in a decided advantage over people that aren't Christians. Because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Right? The word tells us that when we become Christians, we are born again in the Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit lives in us, guiding us, empowering us. As we turn our lives more and more over to the Holy Spirit, then it's not my willpower that fights against the flesh, but it's the Holy Spirit in me that fights against the flesh. And this is a good thing. Instead of me deciding on my own that I can stand firm, the Holy Spirit helps me to stand firm. And the Holy Spirit is powerful. Right? What does the word tell us? Paul tells us this. That it's the same spirit that raises Jesus Christ from the dead that lives in us as believers. And so I'm not trying to stay away from my sin on my own, but the spirit of God is helping me. But, but even still, the draw is significant. We call this process sanctification. We are sanctified when we are born again. That means we are in a position of holiness. Thanks be to the grace of God, we are born again. We are free from sin. We are in a position of holiness. We are sanctified. But the process where we start to live that out in reality of our lives is called sanctification. My job as a Christian is to grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ. We call that discipleship. In sanctification, I'm growing to be more and more like Jesus Christ, trying to get to this sanctified position that I've been called to, that I've been given undeservedly. And I'm trying to live a way that gets me there. That's growing up in Christ. It's maturing. It's fighting the flesh. That's what Jesus means when he says, you must crucify the flesh. You must die to yourself every day. Pick up your cross. Carry it, right? Ruthlessly cutting sin out of our lives. This is the process. So here's the question. What happens when a Christian refuses? What happens when somebody born again of the Holy Spirit, right? They have said, I want to follow Jesus. And as far as I know, it's a genuine conversion. They've decided to follow Jesus and they want Jesus and they want to live a life that honors him for a second. But the draw of the flesh is so appealing that they keep turning down the alley. They keep engaging. What happens? Well, that's when the church has to come in with discipline. That is the entire 
reason um, for this section of the letter that Paul writes. He talks about the need for church discipline. And what's interesting about this is he does not spend time rebuking. I mean, we're going to talk about a a man who is having a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. But what's interesting about this is that Paul isn't admonishing and correcting the individual that's doing this abominable thing. Paul is correcting and admonishing the church because the church hasn't dealt with it. So, so this instruction is how are we as a body, as a pastor, as elders, as leaders, as members of this body, how are we to deal with sin in the church that runs free? So go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to go through the whole chapter today, but, but we're going to dwell mostly in 1 through 8. That's where we're going to live for the, for the most of our time. And I'm going to read those first eight verses for you um, as we go. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you And yet you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." All right, let's go ahead and, and dig in here. We're going we're gonna to break this apart chunk by chunk because there's a lot to understand. And frankly, there's a lot at stake. What's at stake when, when we refuse and when we fail as a body to discipline well? Our reputation, right? We've got a whole watching world We've got a whole world looking at the church and looking for reasons to discount our teachings. And so if we have members that are living wantonly rebellion, sinful lives that say, oh yeah, I belong to Blessed Hope Community Church. Well, then our reputation is at stake. Right? You know what else is at stake? Our health. Our health is at stake because when somebody in the body is acting in open defiance and it goes unchecked, well, guess what? Other people start to follow. And most importantly, what's at stake is this. The glory of a God who loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to die for our purity right? So that our sins would be on him and his holiness and righteousness would come to us. The glory of that God is at stake when we allow sin to go unchecked. So this is not anybody's favorite um, topic, certainly not mine to preach, um, but of critical importance. So here's what Paul says as he writes this section um, to the church in Corinth. And you can imagine as they're standing there, um, they're, they're in um, the room and, and they're being taught. The leaders of the church have opened the letter and they're reading this. And so people are hearing um, this admonishment that's about them from Paul. And he says, listen, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you the kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant, boastful, prideful. Instead, shouldn't you rather mourn? Right? And so this is, this is the way Paul just starts to unpack this chunk. He says, look, it's been reported, right? It's reported among you. Probably Chloe, right? Remember, remember earlier when, when Chloe dispatched some of her, her folks, like some people from her family, she's like, look, you got to go talk to Paul. Things are falling apart here in Corinth. The church is floundering. It's struggling. Go tell Paul we need help. 
right? Part of that was that there's division and bickering and fighting, right? And David has talked about that. We've covered that in the first few weeks. But, but also, um, Chloe probably reported to Paul, hey, by the way, there's this weird thing that's happening where this guy is sleeping with his mother-in-law and the church is just acting like it's a not, not a big deal. It says it's reported, right? It's common knowledge. It's not like this sin is happening in secret. Now listen, secret sin is just as deadly as overt sin, right? But here's the thing. It's not our jobs as leaders in the church, as members of the body. You are not a sin detective. That is not your job. It is not your job to get in there and find out where people are being sinful, right? Relationships help with that. As we sit down and we talk and we have regular accountability and we pray together and we study the word together, those things come to light, right? But you aren't a detective. But Paul's saying, look, you didn't have to work very hard to find this out, right? This is common knowledge. It's reported. Like, like everybody knows this is going on. And it's so bad, right? It's so bad that what was happening in the church, which should have stricter, tighter morals, right? Because we are following God and we are trying to practice the holiness of God. But this sin that's happening is so bad that the Romans even have a law against it. Rome had a law against incest, right? And, and, and we get that. That's a good thing because it's not supposed to happen. Rome had a law against it. So what's happening is somebody in the name of Jesus Christ is doing something so immoral that the outside world looks at it and says, that's wrong. And the church is looking the other way. The church is maybe looking the other way. The church is maybe even celebrating the freedom that they have in Jesus. They're boasting about the freedom they have in Jesus instead of dealing with the sin. It's like Paul has to remind them that immorality is actually immoral. And you know what? We have that same problem. I can't tell you the number of times that I've sat at my table across from somebody who has been appalled and angry and frustrated because I'm trying to explain to them that what they're doing is immoral, right? In our culture, we tend to decide that morality is a moving target, right? And so we say that as long as it's not hurting anybody else, it's not really a problem. And there are obvious examples. Living together before marriage. Right? Living together before marriage, right? We love each other. I love this one. We're married in spirit, just not legally. Right? It's no big deal. Right? And, and as we talk, and I'm like, look, look, this is, according to the Bible, this is immoral. Right? And trying to explain to somebody that this immoral thing is immoral. Right? That immorality is immoral and, and that we can't just decide what's moral on our own, but that God lays these things out. That having sex outside of the confines of marriage. Right? That, that there are certain relationships that God says no to. Like, these are difficult things for us to try to wrap our heads around. And as a church, we have to really wrestle with this. Right? But this is where Paul is appalled at the church in Corinth. He's like, I shouldn't have to remind you. I shouldn't have to teach you that immorality is bad. But that's where he, that's where he is. That's where he's stuck. He's trying to teach them that immorality is something that is wrong. He says, it's been reported among you that this is happening. The pagans don't even do this. They know better than this. You guys are celebrating something that the rest of the world would say is wrong. It's supposed to be the other way around. You're arrogant. Here's what you should be doing. You should be mourning. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you were really broken over sin? I mean, you were just broken over sin. Not even your own sin. 
but just sin. When you hear of sin in the church, do you get judgmental? Or does it make you mourn? When you hear that somebody is living in a life um, that isn't following God, do you get judgmental about that? Are you ho-hum about that? Or does it break you? Do you mourn over the sin? This is, this is, one, of the, um, this is one of the burdens of, of pastors and elders in the church. But you know what? I, we would love it if you shared it with us. We mourn over sin. People leave their marriages. People are involved in relationships they shouldn't be involved in. People struggle with addiction. People engage in unrepentant sin. We know it, right? As leaders, as shepherds of the flock, it it breaks us. We mourn over it. Can we control it? No. But we mourn over it. And you know what? We're called as a body to mourn over sin together. Again, I'm not asking you to be a detective. But when you know there's sin, mourn. Listen, a church that won't mourn over sin especially sin within its own body, it's on the edge of disaster. That's just a reality. If, if we decide that sin is no big deal, it is a short walk from there to God deciding that we are not helpful in his kingdom. I mean, I want you to really get that because that's not me just being like overly dramatic. If we tolerate sin to the degree that we're no longer holding accountable, right, those that wantonly sin, we no longer are looking different than the rest of the world, then we're not overly useful to the kingdom of God that's calling people into worship and holiness and righteousness. And a church that can't mourn over sin is a church that's not overly useful to God as he wants to move his kingdom. We keep going. Um, This is exactly the sin that uh, Jesus is correcting um, one of the churches in Revelation. In Revelation 2, he says this, I know your works, Thyatira. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. Like he is building them up. He's like, you guys are a really good church. I know. I know that you're patient. I know that you're enduring. I know that you're working hard, right? But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So here's what's happening, right? In the church in Thyatira here, Jesus is saying, look, you're doing great, right? Except this. There is a woman who calls herself a Christian who is actively teaching that it's okay to be sexually immoral. She's actively teaching something that's wrong. And you tolerate her. As a church, you're tolerating her. You're tolerating her teaching. You're letting it go unchecked. And he says, because of that, man, doom is coming if you don't fix it. This is the the context here. We've got to deal with these things. We have to mourn over sin. We keep going. Um, And so in the second half of verse 2, he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so let's just get right into it. He says this. He says, because this gross sin, right, um, is happening in the body, remove him. You take that person and you remove him. The fancy word for that is excommunicate. Right? I know some of you thought that was just a Catholic thing. It's not. It's a biblical thing. Although, Perhaps Catholicism takes it to an extreme that Paul does not intend, right? Because um, we're going to read, most likely, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I believe, you're going to read about this same individual who Paul says, look, it worked. Welcome him back, right? Forgive him and bring him back into fellowship because the discipline worked, right? We'll talk about that. But he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Take him outside of the fellowship of the church. He no longer belongs in the fellowship of the church. Now, I know right off the bat that feels hard to some of you. 
that feels judgy. It feels rough. And I get it. But Paul's not acting on his own here. Paul is simply applying the teachings of Jesus. Go back to Matthew. This is what Jesus says about discipline. If your brother, sister, if a person in the church sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Right? Come to me and sit me down and say, Matt, you got sin in your life, and I want to point it out to you because holiness matters. If he listens, if I listen to you, awesome, you've gained a brother. I repent, right? We are restored together, and the fellowship of the body goes on, and God is honored. But if he doesn't listen, if I refuse to listen, don't give up. Don't take your ball and go home. Don't allow the body to be infected with sin. No, no, no. Keep going. Jesus says this. Take one or two along with you. Right? You're like, okay, this is bad. So I'm going to get the Svobodas, and I'm taking them with, and we're going to talk to Matt together. Because it's not just me saying this, but now other responsible Christian people will say the same thing. And if I listen, awesome. I repent. We're forgiven. We're restored. The body is healthy. God is glorified. But if I still refuse... If I still refuse the counsel of good people in the body pointing sin out to me, and I refuse to repent, and I refuse to live a different life, Paul says, or Jesus says, okay, here's what you do. Tell it to the church. So now the whole church is saying, hey, Matt, you are living a life that is contrary to the will of God. You are openly brazenly, defiantly sinful, and you must stop. And if I listen to the whole church, and I repent, and am forgiven, then we move on, and the body is healthy, and God is honored. But if I refuse, still, not just one concerned church member of the body, not just two or three concerned church members, but the entirety of the body saying, hey, This is not the way that you're supposed to be. And I refuse and say, I will do what I want to do. I will live the life I want to live. Then Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, meaning put them out of the fellowship. Put them out of the fellowship. And some of you right now, in your heart, you're like, that is mean and it's hard and how are they ever going to come to know Jesus if I kick them out of the church and you know what here's the thing it's not working with them in the church right now is it Jesus says it's not working right so remove the safety net we're going to see how Paul expounds on that to the Corinthians but but Paul isn't talking of his own um, just ideas here he's just applying for the church in Corinth what Jesus has already said discipline is is necessary and it matters it says so let him be removed from among you and then Paul says this for though absent in body I'm present in spirit and as if present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing Paul says look you know what I would have done if I were there. As the leader of the church, like when I was there, you know what I would have done. You know how I would have responded to this. Like, and I'm still there in spirit. Like, like the, the rule of righteousness, following Christ didn't disappear because I left, right? Because I'm no longer there, it doesn't mean we stop following God in these things. I'm absent in the body, but man, I'm still there. My spirit is still there. I care about you. I love you. I'm still leading you from afar. And I've already pronounced judgment on this, and you ought to as well. And he goes, so here's what you do. When you're assembled, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, right? Because I love you and I'm with you. It says, with the power of our Lord Jesus. I, I love this. He, he's saying the same thing here. He's like, he's like so, so here, when you're assembled... And you've got the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm with you. The Holy Spirit is with you. The power of God is with you. Do what Jesus wants you to do. 
Do what Jesus wants you to do. You're like, man, does Jesus really want us to kick people out of the church? Does Jesus really want us to bring discipline? No. Jesus really wants us to live lives of holiness and repentance. I want to be clear about this. Jesus died for all of us. However, we must choose to follow him. We have to choose to follow him. Proximity is not salvation. I mean, let's, let's be really clear. Being close enough to Jesus does not save you. Proximity doesn't save you. We live in a world where some people think, well, if I'm a member of a church, if I show up at church, then I must be good. I'm all set. You know what that's like? Right? That's like me going through the drive-thru at McDonald's, and I will take a double quarter pounder with extra quarter pounder and supersize my fries, but make it a Diet Coke. Because the Diet Coke is going to save me. The Diet Coke is going to cancel out the extra quarter pounders. Right? That's, that's what it's like. That's what it's like when we say, well, I can be close enough to Jesus. Like, like somehow the Diet Coke, well, you know what? There's only one calorie in that thing. No sugar. So it cancels out all the fat. It doesn't work. Speaking from experience. Well, being close to Jesus doesn't cancel out, right? Being in proximity to Jesus doesn't cancel out your, your Monday through Saturday sin. It doesn't work that way. And so while we might think it's harsh to say we are going to remove them from the fellowship, that that's being mean, somehow that's taking something away from them. No, 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 no. That's not taking anything away from them. That's very clearly pointing out to them what they lack. What they lack. And they're lacking Jesus. Right? And just so you know, we very clearly have the authority to do what Paul is talking about here. He says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord, my spirit's also there with the power of the Lord. Here's what you're going to do. Jesus said this. He said in the same context, we go back to Matthew 18, 16 and 17 told us about this discipline process that Jesus says. And then right after he says, remove them from the church, treat them as pagans, tax collectors. He says, truly, I say to you, this is the same thought. He says, truly, I say to you, whatever you as a church, as a body, whatever you bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We use that verse as um, encouragement when like two people show up to a prayer meeting. We're like, it's okay. Wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus is here. And you know what? It's all good. It's true, right? But the way Jesus is meaning this here, go back to what Bethany said about context. What, what Jesus is meaning here is in the context of discipline, if the body agrees to pursue righteousness and everything, unfortunately, that comes with that, Jesus says, that's the way it is. My stamp of approval is on it. So this is what it comes down to. I've already pronounced judgment on this. You ought to as well. Stop being arrogant, right? Mourn instead. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, here's what you're to do. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. And so let's walk through this now. Deliver this man to Satan so that for the destruction of the flesh. This is a rough one. There's a couple of ways to look at this. One is physical death. 
When Paul says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, what Paul is saying is that you put this man outside of the fellowship and let him continue. And he may even die in his sinfulness. Now, we can clearly see that in areas where people have addictions to alcohol or drugs that go unchecked, where they refuse to seek treatment, they refuse to seek help, they refuse to repent. Eventually, death is on the horizon, right? But it's not just about that. We're actually going to read in 1 Corinthians 11. And it's going to be weird, but we're going to read it. We're going to read in 1 Corinthians 11 how, how Paul says, because you guys have dishonored communion, some of you are sick and some of you have died. Like literally, because you've dishonored communion, God has taken some of you. You have died. We read it with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts uh, 4-ish. Help me. Five. Thanks. See, sometimes I, I should check these things first. But I got help. We read it with Ananias and Sapphira that they lie to the church. They lie to God. And they drop dead in an instant. Like... I'm not sure I understand how that works, but we can't discount it just because we can't understand it. This is the word of God. He says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Think about the, the prodigal son. Think about the prodigal son who, who took his inheritance and he went to a far country, uh, a distant land, and he squandered his inheritance on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right? And all of a sudden he's destitute in the middle of a famine and he finds himself longing to eat pig slop. That dude is going to die unless he comes to his senses and repents, which he does. And God is always gracious when we repent. But this is the scenario. God says, remove them. And when you remove them from the fellowship, you're handing them back to the world system. You're putting them back out in the world system. And guess who runs that? That's Satan. So deliver the man to Satan. Take him out of the protection of the church and put him back outside where Satan will continue um, to be the one that he's followed. That's who he's following anyway. Right? For the destruction of his flesh. Maybe that means if he doesn't repent, he will physically die. But you know what it can also mean? It can also mean that sin nature in him that Paul refers to as flesh that he could kill it. It means that outside of the body where he's face to face with the fact that what I'm choosing to do in my unrepentant life got me kicked out of the church. It got me removed from the fellowship. So now I'm in this position where I've got to decide what it is that I really believe and what it is that I really want to do. And hopefully... In that context, what he will do is he will crucify the flesh. The sin nature in him that was pulling him aside, hopefully he'll start to fight against that. He'll start to crucify that. He'll start to die to that daily. He'll start to trust the Holy Spirit to lead him someplace else. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, we already looked at it. He's like, I wanted to give you uh, solid food, but I could only give you milk because you're still in the flesh, right? How do you get to solid food? You crucify the flesh. You, you put it aside, right? There's a, there's a good thing to give up for Lent. You know, David's right, man. Cut down the TV, do some other things, pursue holiness. Like, but, but if you've got wanton sin in your life, maybe a good thing to give up for Lent is that wanton sin. Start there. But this is the call. Paul says, put him out for, for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's, that's that day of judgment. That's when Jesus returns. Paul says, maybe we can crucify the flesh so that their spirit can be saved. Now, we have to have this quick conversation. Some of you are looking at the clock going, Matt, you got a long ways to go. I know, it's going to be all right. But we have to have this quick conversation. Is this guy a believer? Is this guy a Christian? 
is this guy saved? Because this is the burning question that we have. Sometimes we have it because we are living unrepentantly sinful lives. And we want to know if this guy's saved, then that's good news for us. Because even though we are unrepentantly sinning, there's hope for us. Because this guy is saved even though he's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Sometimes we want to know because we have loved ones that at one point in time made a profession of faith in Jesus. They said, I'm going to follow Jesus. But since then, they've lived lives that are unrepentant. And we love them and we care about them. And we want to know because if this guy that's sleeping with his mother-in-law is saved, then that person in my life that made this profession of faith, but that is also living an unrepentant life, then they probably are okay. And so we ask this question, is this person really a believer? Are they really going to heaven when they die? I don't know. How many of you really love that answer? Here's what I do know. I know that this man has no right to be confident. I I don't know if he is going to be in heaven or not. If he were to die as Paul is penning this letter, I don't know if he is really born again in the spirit. I don't know if he's saved, but I do know this. I know he has no right to be confident in his salvation. There are two schools of thought. One says, um, when you are truly born again, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot let go of it. You cannot forfeit it right? Because you didn't earn it in the first place. It was a free gift of God's grace. You can't forfeit it. The other school of thought says you can't lose it, but, right, if you choose to live unrepentant, then you're letting it go on your own. Nobody's taking it from you, but you're forfeiting it on your own. Those are the two schools of thought. Ultimately, here's what we would say, and here's where they come together. This man, or any man living an unrepentant life, has no right to be confident. Maybe he was never really saved to begin with. Maybe he made an intellectual decision and he's been trying to work it out, trying to fake it till he makes it kind of a thing, and he just quit because it was too hard. So he lived the life of a Christian for a while, but he was never really a Christian. He has no right to be confident. Maybe he really was a Christian for a minute and a half and then life got too hard and he gave it up. He has no right to be confident. I don't care what school of thought you're at. If you're a once saved, always saved person or you're a you can forfeit your salvation person, this is where we marry. Somebody living an unrepentant, rebellious life has no reason to feel confident in their salvation. Now there is a difference, right? There is a difference between sin and rebellion. Listen to me. I sin all the time. I do dumb more often than I care to admit. Most of you are well aware of it. Most of you are well aware of the dumb that I do. I sin all the time. And I confess it. I ask God to help me do better. I trust the Holy Spirit to help me put that to death, to kill that flesh in me and to walk in the Spirit and to be sanctified and to live a better life. That's the Christian path. That's discipleship. Not all sin needs discipline. Most sin needs discipleship. Helping us grow past where we are. Helping us grow in maturity. When somebody comes in my office and they say, Matt, I'm struggling, I say, you know what? I know. Let me help you grow. Because they don't want to keep doing that. They're like Paul. They're like, I keep doing what I don't want to do. It doesn't need discipline. It needs love and care and discipleship. But when somebody is living in open rebellion, they're not asking God to forgive them. They're not asking the church to help them move past it. They're just saying, God, I know what you say, but I don't care. What I want is more important. That's rebellion. That doesn't need discipleship. That needs discipline. And that is the role of the church. And it's not meant to be harsh. It's meant to be corrective. It's meant to be restorative. Paul keeps going here. 
And he says, this is his summative statement. So he's, he's made this, this comment. He's like, this is what you're to do. You remove that from your fellowship, right? Now he's making this statement about why it matters so much. Your boasting isn't good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Um, if you don't know what leaven is, think yeast. It's not exactly the same, but it's close enough, right? Um, you, you put yeast in the dough and then the dough rises, right? It, it, just a little bit. You can't be like, oh, it won't really rise because I only put a little bit of yeast in there. No, I mean, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rise. It infects the loaf. That's how it works, right? He says, so, so a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. There's, there's a lot of things there with, with the Passover and God um, asking them to, to prepare a lamb and um, to make the unleavened bread. And there's a lot of Old Testament connection there. But, but here's, here's what, it, what we just need to wrestle with right this second. In this context, leaven is sin, unleavened is holy. This is the connection that Paul's making. Leaven equals sin in this context, unleavened equals holy. And he's saying, so don't you know that a little bit of sin in the dough is going to make the whole loaf sinful? So remove the sin, right? Again, not regular sin. Regular sin, that sounds stupid. But the rebellion. Remove the rebellion so that the whole loaf can be pure the way God intends it to be. Because he's our Passover lamb. And he's been sacrificed. Don't, listen, I've said this and, and I felt bad. Like I've, I've, I said this to somebody once sitting across the table who was explaining to me why their rebellion was justified. And out of my frustration and I've, I've it was wrong. It was sinful and I've repented. And I, I hope to do better in a similar situation in the future. But all I could muster was to say, you are, you, you are spitting on the cross of Christ. When you are arguing for your rebellion, you are spitting on the cross. And there, there was a better way to say it that might have, might have bore more fruit. I don't know. But it was all I had in the moment because it's like you, you, are, you are saying, thank you for the blood that purifies me. I'm just going to do whatever I want anyway. It doesn't work. So he says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the, the rebellion, not with the old leaven, not with rebellion, of malice and evil, of sin and rebellion. But let us celebrate the Passover, this rightness with God through Jesus, with the unleavened bread of holiness, sincerity, truth, peace. He finishes up. I know you're like, man, we, we got a lot to go through. I get it. We're going to do it right here. This is just a clarification. That's why we, we, we don't linger here too long. This is just clarifying. Paul said, hey, I, I wrote you in my letter. Yes, Paul wrote a first letter that's not in the Bible, right? Um, so actually what we know as the letter of 1 Corinthians was not Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Paul probably wrote many letters to many individuals in many churches. We don't, not all of them were inspired by the Holy Spirit to be in the Bible. They're good, right? Paul didn't write crap right? They're good letters to read, but they're not scripture. Listen, uh, we got some people in here that love authors and pastors. We love to read what they put out. Like, I mean, if I got to hear about Jen Wilkin, one more time. She's awesome, right? She's not the Holy Spirit, however. We read these things. We love these things. We're encouraged by these things. When I read Kyle Eidelman, I... When I read Kyle Eidemann, we reread them, we love them, we're encouraged by them. Matt Chandler, Francis Chan, whatever, we're, we're moved. Um, but they're not scripture, right? They never are elevated to the level of the Bible. You know, what we should be studying more than I'm studying what Matt Chandler wrote in his latest book. I ought to be studying the word of God, Right? Don't get confused by that. But, but Paul had written them previously. He said, I wrote you previously not to associate with sexually immoral people. And you jacked it up. He's like, I didn't think I had to clarify, but you guys are so nuts. I have to clarify. He's like, I didn't mean non-Christians. Right? When I wrote you not to associate with sexually immoral people, I wasn't talking about the world. Right? Of course there are going to be sexually immoral people outside of the church. 
They're going to be immoral. They're going to be greedy. They're going to be swindlers. They're going to be idolaters. You know, because if you were going to avoid them, you'd have to actually leave the world. And it turns out they're our mission. We are here to make disciples. Well, we have to be among sinners to make disciples. So he's like, of course I didn't mean them. Right? Here's what I meant. But now I'm writing to you. He's like, now I'm clarifying because, again, you're infants and you need milk. He says, now I'm clarifying. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater. Reveler, drunkard, swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those inside the church whom you're... Is it not those inside the church that you're to judge? God judges the outside, but you purge the evil person from among you. And so this is the summative statement. He's like, of course you don't shun the outside world. Right? Now, you can be separate from the outside world. Right? You want to separate yourself from the sin. Right? But you don't want to isolate yourself from the outside world. Don't be in a Christian huddle. You're not in a bubble. You've, you, they're the mission. But if there is somebody who calls themselves a Christian, if they say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and they are living a life of rebellion, not they're tripping and falling down and repenting and trying hard, even if they keep tripping, but they keep repenting and keep trying. I don't know. But you are with somebody who calls themselves a Christian and they're living in open rebellion, not even wanting to change. He says, you have nothing to do with those people. Judge them and remove them from your fellowship. Purge them from among you. And that's not just about sexual immorality. That's just about immorality all over the place. And so um, some of you have been told that Christians aren't supposed to judge. That's false. Christians are supposed to judge at times, but they are to do so patiently, lovingly, gently, and carefully. Here's what that looks like. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Listen to me. If you are not also trying to pursue holiness, then you are in no position to tell somebody else that they're doing it wrong. Take the log out of your own eye. But if you are fighting to kill the flesh and to grow and to move and to be discipled and sanctified then that puts you in a position to carefully, lovingly, patiently, gently judge believers that are not. What does this look like at the church? Last thing here at Blessed Hope, this is what it looks like. We ask every person to confront sin where they see it. Following the steps that Jesus laid out. Talk to an individual. Encourage them. Hold them accountable. If they listen, awesome. End of story. You don't need to tell anybody else about it. You just thank God for his provision and you move forward. If they refuse, take somebody else. If they still refuse, then this is instead of coming and standing in front of the church on a Sunday morning, our ask is that you bring it to the leadership of the church and you allow the elders then to decide the disciplinary steps. Sometimes it's removing people from fellowship. We've done that. Sometimes it's um, corrective behavior that they respond to. Sometimes there's a season of correction and then waiting to see. Now, here's what I'd also say. If it's an elder or a pastor that you believe is unrepentantly sinful, then talk to the other elders, pastors, about how to deal with that. Because that can't go unchecked either. And I will just say this, there are, if you feel like you're getting nowhere there, there are provisions in our bylaws to bring to the church the potential removal of an elder or a pastor for wantonly sinful behavior. Not because you don't like a decision they made, right? But because of wantonly sinful behavior. All right, here's what we're going to do because I've kept you long, but you don't care because you wanted 
like meat, not milk. And now I've put you in a position where you can't complain. But the workers downstairs will. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And, and, and my invitation to you is um, to really reflect on this. Are you living in rebellion in any area of your life? If you are, then you're opening yourself up to discipline. And I will confess to you that we as elders have not always done a fantastic job with church discipline. We're trying. It's a process. We're growing. We're trying to do better. Um, and we've committed to God to continue to do better. Um, but I also would say this. I would love it if we didn't have to have an awkward conversation with you. So if there's areas of your life where you are living in open rebellion, I'm going to ask you, let's talk so that we can move it from discipline to discipleship. Heavenly Father, God, you are good and gracious and kind, and your word is clear. The holiness of the church matters because it is the blood of your son that purifies it. God, help us not to waste that or to treat it with disrespect. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. Amen. Hey, go in peace.